verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And while you find your way to that place in God's word, I want to ask you this morning, can you feel it? Can you feel the madness? The madness that is, that is March madness, it is upon us and it is in full swing. And my bracket is thoroughly busted. I had, I had selected the University of Virginia, who was the number one overall seed in the NCAA uh, tournament, to win it all, to go all the way to the championship, not to lose a game. They lost all of, like, I think two games all season long, best defense uh, in the nation, uh, allowing only 53 points a game. And they got smoked on Friday night by the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, one of those hyphenated schools, the Golden Retrievers. Beat the tar out of the University of Virginia on Friday night. And, and, and didn't just beat them by, they beat them by 20 points. University of Virginia, who allowed only 53 points a game all season long against them, allowed the golden retrievers of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, to score 74 points against them. It was amazing. It was historic. The first time in NCAA tournament history that a 16 seed has ever beaten a number one seed. And so uh, even though my, my bracket uh, is thoroughly busted, uh, I, I still was rejoicing for the underdog. And in this case, literally underdog, they're retrievers. See, there's a little thing there. Someone just got that. That's good. It, it was historic, this upset. It was exciting. It was fun to watch. And now I feel like I can root for all of the underdogs in the rest of the tournament. Now I can just enjoy watching basketball now that there's you know, no bragging rights involved because I've lost those. But that Friday night, if, you, if you're able to watch the game, you saw afterwards the, the response of the team. Of the retrievers themselves. They were, they were excited. They were celebrating. They were, they were grinning from ear to ear. This was, this was a, a momentous occasion but also a highly unlikely and extremely uncommon one. The story that isn't often told of 16 seeds in history in the history of the NCAA tournament, of the other 135 16 seeds before them, the story that is often not told of those is that they returned back to their hometowns, returned back to their uh, home cities and to their campuses defeated. And most of the time, I would venture to say we're welcomed back home and celebrated all the same. So even as much celebration as there is in the victory of 116 seed, there's still celebration just for the fact that their team made the tournament that year, even for those 135 previous 16 seeds who lost and who returned home. 16 seeds are perennial underdogs in the NCAA tournament. It is, it is uh, exceedingly, exceedingly rare, to say the least, that they should be victorious. And when it happens, it's exciting. But even when they lose, there's still victory in having been able to make it to the tournament, been played in the, having played in the game and return home as those uh, to their fans who, who gave it their all anyway. The victory of UMBC over the University of Virginia is, is not a common analogy for Christians, for, for believers who are following Christ, uh, either today or in the course of history. Ours is more like the other 135, 16 seeds who lost to the number one seed regularly. Believers, Christians, are regularly victorious in this world. Or, or excuse me are irregularly victorious in this world and are regularly the object of scorn, those who are in earthly terms defeated. We are, as we'll see in Acts chapter 6 today and, and 7 and 8, we are often those who are persecuted, even killed, put to death because of what we believe. 
And yet there is rejoicing and cause for celebration all the same. In this text, in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through Acts chapter 8, verse 3, yes, all of those verses, we find Stephen, this early disciple of Jesus, when falsely accused of blasphemy, we find him uh, in response to that and to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, using the Old Testament scriptures that he knew and loved and understood to give a stirring defense of the faith and witness to the risen Jesus. An act that will ultimately cost him his life. He will not be victorious over the one seed that day. We'll find here that giving witness to Christ is sometimes a dangerous and a deadly task. But the risen Jesus will never forsake or deny those who publicly acknowledge him as king and redeemer. As we look at this text today, my hope would be that we would, we would see uh, two things. One, uh, in the, we would see the Old Testament as part of God's gospel, his good news of, of his salvation work in history. And that we would, in knowing that, be prepared to give confident witness to the risen Jesus, even if unto death. Let's turn our attention to God's word this morning. Acts chapter 6. Uh, we'll read verses 8 through 15 uh, together, and then, uh, but keep your Bibles open because we'll be, I'll be referring to much uh, uh, along the way in chapter 7 and in 8. Would you stand with me as we read together Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15? <clears throat> Luke, the early Christian historian, continues this way. He says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that, what uh, was like the face of an angel. And God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. As we look at these first few verses in the longer passage that we'll be looking at today, we find first this in Acts 6 verses 8 through 15, that Christ-like witnesses are often treated like Christ. Christ-like witnesses are often treated like Christ. We see in this man, Stephen, the, the one for whom I am named. And by the way, this is the third time that I have preached this text in my life. And I'm glad that none of you have brought rocks to this sermon, as we'll see later. I don't know, maybe they fit in your pockets, but uh, anyway. But we see Stephen, this disciple of Jesus, this member of the early church, being a witness to Christ in both word and deed. We've said several times in our uh, progression through Acts that the ministry of, of the church, the ministry of those who are followers of Jesus, is both a word and deed ministry. It is a, the word of the gospel that is spoken, and it is, is carried along and evidenced uh, by the deeds that we do for those who, who need care, for the love and, the, um, uh, and care that we extend to to others. As verse 8 tells us here, Stephen is one who is full of grace and power. Even as we saw in chapter 6 verse 5 last week, that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is a man who is full of it in all of the best ways. Acts chapter 7 verse 55, which we'll see later, will show us that he's a man who is again full of the Holy Spirit. 
This empowerment by the Holy Spirit we know allows Stephen to do the work of the wonders and the signs that are being done in verse 8. In the same manner as with the apostles, these wonders, these signs, these miraculous things that are happening are giving validating evidence to the gospel of Jesus Christ that Stephen is preaching everywhere that he goes. That there is salvation only in the name of Jesus as we repent from our sins and trust in him. And it is the same Holy Spirit with which Stephen is full that empowers him to work wonders and gives him, uh, that also gives him wisdom uh, to preach the gospel to those who will inevitably oppose him, as we'll see here in verse 10. So great is the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in Stephen's preaching, that his opponents, even, even as they oppose him and bring him up, try to bring him up on trial, even his opponents are dumbfounded by it. Verse 10 says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. We here might be reminded of Jesus who, as he preached in his hometown of Nazareth in Matthew chapter 13, uh, would be reminded of the, the astonishment of the neighbors and his old friends from his own hometown who heard him teaching and preaching, saying in Matthew thirteen fifty four, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Well, we know Jesus received it because he is the eternal son of God in flesh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, the same is true of Stephen. He's not God in flesh, but he is full of the spirit, giving him wisdom to speak the gospel courageously and with and with great wisdom. Stephen is a witness, a Christ-like witness to Jesus in both word and deed. But also, Stephen, being a Christ-like witness who is often treated like Christ, is falsely accused like Jesus. As he preaches the gospel there in Jerusalem, he comes upon some people who are not very happy with what he is preaching. And he is deceptively accused by various different synagogues. Now, the text this morning tells us, Luke here tells us, that men from the synagogue of the freedmen, which was composed of slaves who had been freed, they're no longer slaves or had purchased their freedom, uh, a synagogue of freedmen who were living there in Jerusalem, as well as synagogues of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, uh, uh, other regional areas there, and the synagogue of the Cilicians and Asians. So at least three different synagogues who were upset. Synagogues were small local gatherings of, of, uh, of Jews there in Jerusalem and around the, the Greek Empire. Groups of Jews and their leaders who were really upset with what Stephen was doing, that he was preaching salvation in the name of Jesus. All of them angry with this gospel. And they begin to dispute with him about the gospel. They begin to argue with him. And not being able to overcome his arguments, they resort to, as we saw and read earlier, secretly instigating false witnesses to condemn him. They, they plan and, and scheme to have people bring false testimony against Stephen so that he might be at, the, at least quieted uh, of speaking the gospel and at most maybe even put to death. These trumped-up charges against Stephen are ultimately of the worst sort. They are, uh, they are charges of blasphemy. He's accused of blasphemy against four different things. Against God, against Moses, against the temple, and even the law. The next day, Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling council. We saw the Sanhedrin put Peter and John on trial in Acts uh, 3, and then later in Acts 5, we saw them put all of the apostles on trial Before this same Sanhedrin, Stephen is accused of sins deserving death. 
that he has falsely spoken and offensive, uh, has spoken falsely and offensively against God himself and against the various pillars of the Jewish faith. Even more, these false witnesses, these men who are secretly instigated, twist the words of Jesus that we read in John chapter 2, 19, where Jesus tells the Jewish rulers that they could destroy the temple and that he could, de- that he could destroy the temple and in three days he'd raise it again. When there in John 2, he's speaking of his own body and his ultimate crucifixion and resurrection. The Sanhedrin takes and twists what Jesus says and, and, and the affirmation of that from his disciples to mean that Jesus and his followers intend to tear down the temple in Jerusalem, this place of worship to God. Though falsely accused, all these different crimes deserving death under Jewish law, even though he's not committed them. Though falsely accused and misrepresented, Stephen does not respond in anger or in wrath or, or by spitting back insults. Instead, we read in verse 15 that at gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this does not mean that Stephen is somehow miraculously transfigured into an angelic being. Okay, He doesn't become something other than human. But what it does mean is that the grace of God is so resting upon G, uh, Stephen in this moment that those who are witnessing this man falsely accused and really having no, no legitimate charges to lay against him, they see the work of God all over this guy. Christ-like witnesses are often treated like Christ. Stephen was falsely accused and falsely brought up on trial. Christian, you this morning should know that you ought to expect to receive mistreatment for following Christ. You should expect to receive mistreatment for following Christ. Now, we keep coming across this theme in Acts, don't we? Uh, Believers in Jesus receiving mistreatment for following Jesus. But the repetition of this theme, I don't think, should dull us to this reality, but it should quicken our, our eyes and our hearts to see and understand this reality all the more. It should form our expectations for Christian living that we see so often Christians being reviled, being mistreated, being insulted, being brought up on trial, being ultimately even killed. The mistreatment of the disciples in Acts is escalating. It it, it began with insults in Acts 2 after the Spirit fell upon the apostles and they were preaching in these other languages the gospel uh, of Jesus. Those who were looking around said, ah, these guys are just drunk, what do they know? It moved from insults to, uh, to being arrested and being told uh, uh, very strictly by the Jewish rulers not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Don't even do this anymore, they tell Peter and John. It moves from uh, an arrest and a warning to being arrested and then beaten, beaten severely for Jesus. All of the apostles in that case in Acts 5. Now to hear Stephen, where we'll see later on uh, in the course of the passage we're in today, Stephen will lose his life because of the gospel. Friend, if you came to Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to save you, to put you in a right relationship with God so that your life could get easier, you came to Jesus for the wrong reasons. We see time and again, not just in the book of Acts, but, but throughout the course of Christian history, that those who follow Christ, their lives on this earth often get more difficult, not, not more easy, not more simple. Coming to Christ is is not about having your life fixed. It's about having your relationship with God made whole. It's about being made holy. It's about being made to look like Jesus. And in being made to look like Jesus, why would God not also then allow us to endure some things like Jesus did? Christ-like witnesses are often treated like Jesus. So, Christian, you should expect to receive mistreatment for following Christ. 
But moving forward in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. Now, for the sake of time this morning, we're not going to read all of these verses, but keep your Bibles open uh, as, we look at, as we look at these things and as we look at Stephen's response to the Sanhedrin. Here in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 50, 53, we see that Christ-like witnesses know the gospel of Jesus. So Christ-like witnesses are often treated like Christ, but secondly, Christ-like witnesses know the gospel of Jesus. Now, P, uh, Stephen has been um, uh, falsely accused of blasphemy in four ways, against God, against Moses, against the temple, and the law. And in verses 1 through 53 of chapter 7, Stephen is addressing those charges. He's giving his defense. And look at how he begins his defense. In chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and sisters, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred, go to the land that I will show you. He begins there with the the beginning of the history of Israel to show that through uh, verse 16, that Jesus is the promise of God to the patriarchs. Stephen uses the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus is the promise of God to the patriarchs. You may need to, on the slides, go ahead and fast forward to the end of the the text that's there. You'll see that point. Far from blaspheming against God, Stephen recognizes the God of the patriarchs, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, as the God of glory here in verse 2. Reviewing the history of Abraham's call by God and God's faithfulness to his promises, even to Abraham's descendants, Stephen here in these first 16 verses of chapter 7 begins laying the foundation for demonstrating that Jesus is the answer to the promise of offspring to Abraham. Jesus is the answer to the promise of, the off, to, uh, of offspring to Abraham. The genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, uh, which is volume 1 of Luke's history of Jesus and the church, ties Jesus directly to Abraham as a proper descendant of his, but also goes further back in time, even to the first man, Adam, and thereby even to God himself. We spent, we spent a lot of time uh, on Sunday nights and, and, uh, and even around the Christmas season talking about God's promises to Abraham and to David and to others in the Old Testament. And here Stephen is picking up on that, those very same themes to, to show that Jesus is the answer to all of those promises. The promise that God made to Abraham was primarily about having offspring, having descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky and of, of blessing that would come to all of the nations of the world through Abraham and his offspring. Stephen rightly understands that this promise is most perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham, who is made righteous by uh, his uh, uh, descendant of Abraham, who is made righteous by his faith in God's promise. And as Abraham's son, Jesus dies in the place of sinful mankind and is raised from the dead so that he might bring the promise of righteousness by faith, uh, righteousness and rightness with God to all who believe in him. Jesus is the answer. He is the promise to the patriarchs, the promise of offspring that will bless the nations, Stephen shows us. And then moving forward to verses 17 through 43 of Acts chapter 7, we see, uh, so now already uh, Stephen has addressed this charge of blasphemy against God. He's saying, no, 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 The God of glory chose our forefathers to, to give them a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. I'm not blaspheming God. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding the work of God in the history of Israel rightly. He moves forward to address the charge of blasphemy against Moses to show here that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Now, Moses, we know, is of critical importance to Israel. He's the man that God used to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt. 
as God's chosen ruler and redeemer, as Stephen calls him in verse 35 of Acts 7. Moses acts as God's chosen prophet, his mouthpiece, his spokesperson to lead his people and to give them God's law, the the way that God is to be worshipped rightly by his people, Israel, ultimately bringing them to, to the promised land and all along the way, serving as one who gives living oracles from God, as Stephen says in verse 38 of chapter 7. But we need to understand this, and Stephen points us to this reality, that Moses is not the greatest prophet of God. Though he was a great prophet of God, he's not the greatest. And, and nor, neither is uh, Moses himself an immortal or even an everlasting prophet. Moses died on a mountain and was not even carried into the promised land. As Stephen notes in verse 37, even Moses himself prophesied of a day when God would send another prophet to Israel. Look at Acts 7 verse 37. Uh, begin, look at verse 35, go just a couple of verses earlier. Stephen says, This Moses, whom they rejected, whom Israel rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Interestingly enough, Stephen has already pointed, or excuse me, Peter has already made the same statement that Stephen is making, uh, the, citing uh, what Moses uh, is recorded as saying in Deuteronomy 18.15, that God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. In Acts chapter 3, verse 22, Peter makes the same point that Stephen is making. All this is to say that Stephen can't be speaking wrongly of Moses, can't be blaspheming against Moses in preaching the gospel of Jesus, but rather that he is clearly understanding and rightly applying the work of God through Moses to prepare the people of Israel for Jesus. When Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, God will send you a prophet like me from among you, he is ultimately speaking about Jesus. Peter and Stephen both note this in the book of Acts. Jesus, as the very Son of God in human flesh, is more than a spokesperson for God like Moses. He's the very incarnate Word of God Himself, the Word of God in flesh, having taken on humanity, as John says in his gospel when he opens it. When Jesus speaks, friends, it is God speaking. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, but the prophet that's even better than Moses, Stephen says. What about the charge of blasphemy against the temple that these false witnesses bring and of the law, the temple and the law kind of going together because law related to worship, which happened in the temple? Well, Stephen shows us in verses 44 through 53 of Acts chapter 7 that Jesus is the true temple. The false accusation of blasphemy against the temple, this place of worship of God, would have been to say that Stephen had falsely and disrespectfully spoken against the proper form and place of worship of God. But again, Stephen corrects the Sanhedrin's thinking on this point as well. Can you imagine this, by the way? Just this Greek-speaking Jew, layman in the city, taking the Sanhedrin, these Jewish elite, the elite Jewish rulers in Jerusalem, taking them to task on the scriptures that they should be experts in. Stephen rightly notes that it was God who gave instructions for how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness and ultimately the temple. Here in verse 44, he says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. 
But Stephen also astutely points out that even though God instructed that the tabernacle be built for proper worship in the book of Exodus, that the most high God, he says in verse 48, the most high God does not dwell in houses made by hands. So even if there is a house of worship, that is not a place that contains, that constrains God. Citing Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Here in uh, verses 49 and 50, we read this. Stephen here citing uh, the prophet Isaiah. He says, uh, this of God, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? Inciting those two verses from Isaiah chapter 66, Stephen gives proper attention to God's omnipresence. That is his presence everywhere at all times. There's, there, there's no physical place that can contain God or, or even restrict God. There's no physical building that can hold him. So even if the temple were destroyed, Stephen's saying, such an act could not in fact destroy God. So what are you worried about? In all this, we're reminded that it is Jesus Again, the Son of God who takes on humanity to literally tabernacle among us, to be the presence of God among us, to be the manifestation and, 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 and the, the picture, the very presence of God with us. Jesus, as Emmanuel, God with us, is not just better than the temple. He is the true temple where the fullness of God dwells forever, through whom God builds a living temple of those who are born again by faith in Jesus, as we would read in 1 Peter. Jesus is the promise of God to the patriarchs, Stephen shows us. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, better than Moses, Stephen shows us. Jesus is the true temple who's, who's better than, who surpasses, whose presence in human form surpasses the presence of God in any tabernacle or any temple. Stephen knows his Old Testament and he knows that in understanding the Old Testament and seeing it through the lens of Jesus, that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus requires a response. Look at verses 51 through 53 of Acts 7. Stephen finishes his sermon this way. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? As they, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Here speaking of Jesus. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the laws delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. How's that for an invitation? Stephen, on finishing his sermon, does not offer, catch this, does not offer the Sanhedrin here a clear option to believe the gospel, repent, and be saved. We go back to Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, and Peter gives his first sermon at Pentecost. The response of the people is they're cut to the heart by the truth of the gospel. They say to Peter, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, repent today, turn from your sins, trust in Christ, you'll be saved. This is good news. Stephen ends his sermon by looking at the Sanhedrin, who have now three times, three times opposed the gospel and three times threatened the work of the gospel and those who are following Jesus by saying this, you stiff-necked people, you stubborn, bull-headed, thick-skulled people. Rather than giving them an invitation to repent and believe, Stephen, having seen this, their third rejection of Jesus and the gospel in Jerusalem, he indicts their unbelief. He convicts them of the, the only proper charge that anyone can be convicted of in Acts chapter 6 and 7, that they have not believed the truth of God. 
He calls them stiff-necked. He calls them stubborn. He reveals that though they keep the outward requirements of God's law, they have not let their hearts to be shaped by God's own character. Their hardened hearts have blinded them to the truth of God's righteous Messiah, Jesus. And they, not Stephen, they stand guilty of their continued rejection of the truth. The gospel of Jesus requires a response. Stephen shows this, but oftentimes the response of our response to the gospel is not belief, is not repentance. It's continued stiff-neckedness. It's continued stubbornness. It's continued rejection of what is true. Two points of application, two points where where Acts 7 and Stephen's sermon here to the Sanhedrin, where it intersects our lives. First this, Christian, knowing the whole gospel story, From Genesis to Revelation, knowing the whole gospel story is absolutely indispensable for a compelling witness to the risen Jesus. The gospel is not just that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. That's the climax of the gospel. That's where all of God's good news, all of God's story of redemption finds its high point in Jesus' death and resurrection. But friend, don't forget that God's been doing things since Genesis 1 and that God will continue doing things in in his plan of redemption all the way to, to Revelation. The story of the gospel is the story of these 66 books that we call the Bible. Not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but all of this. All of this is revealing to us God who loved us in such a way to to put together in his own mind and in his own wisdom this almost unseemly plan to rescue us from our sin. And it doesn't all just happen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It happens, starts happening in Genesis, and it will be completed in Revelation. Now, Jesus is the high point. His death, burial, and resurrection is the climax. His is the life. His is the person that we trust with our lives and turn from our sin to follow. But he is not all of the gospel. God's story is, is grand, and it is long. And, friend, when you understand what God is doing to save you, Christian, when you know what God has done to save you from your sin and that he began his work to save you from your sin in Genesis and will continue it all the way through the events that are described in in Revelation, that is a much more robust, that's a much more weighty, that's a a picture of the gospel, that's an understanding of the gospel that will stand the test of time. It's a compelling thing to say. It's a compelling thing to believe and to know about God. Knowing the whole gospel story is indispensable for a compelling witness to Christ, but it's also just a wonderful thing, Christian, for you to know. The other night, um, my oldest daughter and I, Abigail, were uh, reading uh, in the Bible, and and, uh, she's always asking me if I'll read with her, and that's great because she helps me to be accountable to help her through that. And she happens to be in Exodus and uh, in, in the, the 20s chapters of Exodus where God is giving Moses instruction for building the tabernacle. And there's all this information there in, in Exodus, uh, it's like 22 through 25. Instruction for how the tabernacle, this tent of, of worship, is to be built. And all this detail with lampstands and tables and the curtains and what's supposed to be on the curtains and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Just all this detail that, that for, a, for a seven-year-old is kind of hard to get her head around. But we start talking about what's going on there. We start talking about all of this garden imagery that is present there in the tabernacle. The lampstand in the tabernacle looks like a tree. There are cherubim that are embroidered into the, the, um, uh, the curtains. Of, of the tabernacle. There are images of, of garden, of, of fruit and, and vegetation and all of this stuff happening uh, and going on within the tabernacle. Inside. All of the tabernacle is a picture of a return to the Garden of Eden. 
It is God saying, come and have fellowship with me again. And this is how you do it. It's a reminder that God wants to be with us, wants to walk with us, that though Adam and Eve sinned and were rejected from the Garden of Eden, and though all of us continue to sin and rebel against God, God wants us back. He's beckoning us back. And so in reading the Exodus chapter 24 or whatever, Abigail and I start talking about Genesis and the garden. And, and in knowing what God is, is the, the purpose of, of the garden in Genesis, you know, one and two before Adam and Eve are, are expelled, we, we can look forward to the hope of being with God again. It's ultimately this hope which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And I find myself where I'm talking to Abigail about the imagery of the garden in the tabernacle and what God is doing in Genesis, what he'll complete in Christ. And friends, knowing God's story from Genesis to Revelation and seeing this thread that he is weaving throughout all of history brought me to tears that night with my daughter. Because this shows how long-suffering God is, how patient God is, that he endures with our sin for a long time that his perfect plan of salvation might be completed in his time and in his wisdom for your benefit and for his glory. Knowing the whole gospel story is indispensable for a compelling witness to Christ. But we also see in Acts chapter 7 that repeatedly rejecting the gospel is a perilous option. Repeatedly rejecting the gospel is a perilous option. A 2016 study published by the Journal of Psychosomatic Research. I know you're all subscribed to that, so you'll know what I'm talking about recently found that men who regularly deny that they are under stress and fail to deal with their anger, anxiety, and depression make them more likely to suffer a heart attack. They found that up to 40% of men in the study were under-reporting the amount of stress that they were actually under, a pattern of behavior that has vastly negative effects on overall health. None of us know a man like that in our lives. In these cases, that was sarcastic. In these cases, this denial of stress as a form of of coping with stress, actually made these men more likely to have a serious cardiac incident. I think we would all agree that the findings of this study are worth noting for our general health. Men, deal with your stress. But at the same time, we understand that in light of the study, that it is good to fess up to the stress that we have in our lives and to deal with it appropriately. That's a good thing to say, I am stressed, I need a healthy outlet. Not to say, no, I'm not stressed, everything's fine. But at the same time, Knowing how important the findings of this study are, at the same time, how often are we confronted with the truth of what God says about, uh, uh, about what our sin earns for us and the results of neglecting to deal with it appropriately, and still we reject it? How often do we hear that the dangerous results of rejecting the gospel, of misunderstanding what sin really is and who God really is as the, as the righteous judge of sin, how often do we hear it and reject it, turn a deaf ear to it, stiffen our necks to it, Friend, how long have you rejected the gospel? How long have you resisted the Holy Spirit's call on your life? How many times have you heard the good news that God desires to save you from your sin, to to, uh, rejoin you to himself through faith in his son, and you have rejected it time and again? Christian, how long have you gone on playing the part of a Christian while knowing full well you've never really given your life to Jesus to be changed? How long have you been pretending at this Christianity thing? How long have you been hearing the gospel every Sunday, yet never really truly responded by submitting your life to Christ? Friends, repeatedly rejecting the gospel is a perilous option for those who know they are far from God and for those who pretend to act like they are not far from God. 
Christ-like witnesses know the gospel of Jesus, and it helps them to, to give compelling witness to him, to call people to response to it. In Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, we find here that Christ-like witnesses endure death like Christ. Treated like Christ, they're opposed even like Christ was. They hold to the truth of the gospel even as Jesus did. And often Christ-like witnesses endure death like Christ. Look at verses 54 through 60 with me. There Luke writes, When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Christian witnesses endure death like Christ, first of all, with trust in God. While Stephen's sermon fills the Sanhedrin with rage, we see there in verse 54, they were enraged. He himself continues to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And with full trust in God, he looks to the heavens to see with his own eyes the risen Jesus himself, who, as we saw in Acts chapter 1, ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Uh, Stephen sees Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. So confident in God, so, so full of trust in God, is Stephen at this point that he tells the Sanhedrin exactly what he's looking at and seeing. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Notice the presence of every person of God in this event. The Holy Spirit filling the heart and life of Stephen. Looking to heaven, he is enabled by the Holy Spirit to see both the Father and the Son. More than merely giving evidence to the existence of God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This passage shows us that every person of the triune God is actively involved as the object of our trust and the enabler of our trust. How wonderful that God so graciously enables Stephen in this way. Stephen endures death like Christ with full trust in God, but also he endures death like Jesus, being strengthened by Jesus himself. As the murderous mob drags Stephen out of the city to stone him to death, Stephen, having seen the risen Jesus, standing in approval of his gospel witness, takes on more of the character of Christ before he dies. He makes two statements in these last moments of his life. First of all, he says in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit saying almost in the exact same words what Jesus himself said on the cross in Luke 23, verse 46, when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen also, as stones are hitting him, crushing his skull, hitting him in the chest and in the back, he cries out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Same words that Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 41, as he's hanging on the cross, Asking God to forgive the sins of the unwitting sins of those who are putting him to death. Friends, understand this. Stephen is not strengthened only by the presence of Jesus, but even by the very character of Jesus himself in his death on the cross. Stephen is taking cues from his Savior in his death as to how to think about, how to treat, how to speak about those people who want him dead. At this point... As Stephen is about to die, as his life is fleeting, his life, his character looks undeniably like Jesus. Undeniably like his Savior, who, who has defeated sin and death, and who stands ready to receive his faithful servant. 
Would that we all would look like Stephen in our deaths. Friends, understand this. In this life, whether you die, or at the end of this life, whether you die peacefully or by the sword, the risen Jesus stands ready to receive into his presence any and all who will place their full faith and hope in him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, where he's telling his disciples and those that are following him that he is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who knows his sheep. He says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You get that picture? No one will snatch Jesus' sheep, his flock out of his hand. My father, he says, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one, Jesus says in John uh, John 10, verse 30. Friend, whether you die peacefully or by the sword, if your life is hid in Christ, if you are united to him by faith and repentance of your sins, nothing can take you out of his hand. Nothing can snatch you from his hand. And so you can endure death like Christ. And even in the pattern that Stephen did, knowing that you are securely held in the hand of your risen Savior himself. Finally, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, as we conclude this this event uh, surrounding Stephen and the results of it. After his death, we see that Christ-like witnesses are secure even in the midst of persecution. Christ-like witnesses are secure in persecution. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Luke writes this. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now in chapter 7 of Acts, verse 58, we were first introduced to Saul as the coat holder of the mob that stoned Stephen to death. And here in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we find him as the one who approves of Stephen's death. You say, hey, great job, guys. Well done. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we find him as an active persecutor of the church, having Christians dragged out of their homes and to prison. We know, though, in the course of Acts that Saul's life will take a dramatic shift in just a couple of chapters in Acts 9. But before that, we find here that he is a violent and virulent opponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul is not yet the apostle. Saul is not yet the missionary that he will be later on in Acts. At this point, he is taking a leading role in the persecution of believers in Jerusalem following Stephen's death. And it is the persecution that Paul, that Saul, excuse me, is spearheading that sends many of the disciples out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. Can you imagine why this verse might be important in the course of Acts? You remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, what Jesus said as he was leaving the disciples, his his 12 uh, disciples. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which they have been in up to this point in Acts chapter 7. Uh, and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. It's quite ironic, isn't it, that the persecution that Saul and others intended to stop the gospel and quiet the disciples, in reality, only serves to mobilize believers into active missionary work and fulfillment of Jesus' declaration that they would indeed be witnesses to his resurrection in Judea and Samaria. 
Even though suffering may be inevitable in the life of the Christian, the mission of the gospel is unstoppable. And because of that, we can be secure. We can be confident in the work of God in our lives, even in the midst of persecution. As we look at these last three verses, first of all, I want to call attention to or call your attention, those of you who may not know Christ or may feel far from Jesus right now. Know this, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace in the gospel. If Saul, who was ravaging the church and spitting threats and arresting believers, could be radically saved by God's grace later on in Acts chapter 9, friends, so can you. There is no sin so great that you cannot be reconciled to God. There, there, there is no act so evil that God cannot forgive as you trace, uh, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, his son. Friend, you can be saved. God desires for you to be saved. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace in the gospel. So know that today. Know that God's work from Genesis to Revelation is for you too. You who are far from God this morning. Trust in Jesus today. Receive the gift of salvation. Let God begin to put your life in order and help you to look like his son. That you might become a part of his family of faith that we call the church. That you might be included in his work to reach the nations with this wonderful gospel. Friend, you're not beyond the reach of God's grace in Christ. But secondly, this, and for Christians, particularly we, we Christians who find ourselves living uh, here in the American West where things are relatively easy. Christian, you must find your security in God's sovereignty and not in your physical safety. You must find your security in God's sovereignty and not in your physical safety. Had Stephen, had any of the believers that we see in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, had any of them placed their security in their physical safety, all of them would have been disappointed. All of them would have been following a false gospel. But they don't place their security in physical safety. They place it in God's sovereignty. They place it in his unchanging nature. They change it in his, in his never failing gospel. They place their security in Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended to God the Father. They place their security in all of the things that never change, that never move, that will never be undone. And in that they are secure, even when their lives are threatened, even when they're being put to death. So Christian, you today, you who live in America where it's really easy to be a Christian, don't find your security in this life, in your physical safety. Find it in God's sovereignty. Several decades ago, Jim Elliott, missionary to Ecuador, trying to take the gospel to a tribe of people in South America who had never heard the name of Jesus before. Upon getting there and beginning to do his missionary work, he, he is eventually captured and killed by the very tribes that, that he was trying to reach. Jim Elliott, before his death in a journal entry, his daily devotion, I think he was studying Ephesians at the time, wrote this note. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Friends, you can lose your physical safety. As a believer in Christ, it it may even, even be likely in your life that you will lose your physical safety. And so if you're holding on to that to get you through life, that you'll never be accosted, that life will always be easy, you'll be regularly disappointed. But Jim Elliott, I encourage you to follow his advice. Give up physical safety for the sovereignty of God in your life to find that you cannot lose that which, you are not, uh, that, that which uh, um, can never be taken away. Don't be a fool who tries to hold on to things that you can lose and all the while missing what can never be taken away. 
rather be wise to see that you can give up your life, you can give up your expectation for safety, physical safety in this life, to embrace God's perfect sovereignty and eternal salvation in response for that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Such is the life of Stephen and the early disciples as he gives the ultimate witness to Christ and as they will begin to be witnesses of Christ in Judea and Samaria. Church at First Baptist West Albuquerque, I I pray that we would be a people who are giving our lives for the gospel in this city and around the world. That we would not hold on to the things that we can lose in this life and in so doing, lose the things that God intends to give us in eternity. Rather, let us hold on to God's promise of eternal salvation and hold loosely the things of this life so that if God let, allows us to keep them or if he takes them away, all the same will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. We are serving God and his power and a gospel that saves any who will trust in Jesus. Friend, this morning, if you don't know Christ, in just a moment, we're going to have a time of response. We're sing a song of response together. And if you want to know Jesus, you want to follow Jesus, you, you are ready to give up all the easiness of, of this life and the hope you have in temporary things to follow an eternal Savior. During our time of response this morning, you come and, and grab me. I'll be standing here at the front ready to receive you, to pray with you, to talk to you about how you can know Christ, how you can know Jesus. Don't let today... Go by without responding to, to Christ. A friend, you may, you may have called yourself a Christian for a long time, but you're realizing that your life doesn't look a whole lot like Stephen's. I don't mean mine. I mean Stephen's in the Bible. Your, your life is not confident in God's sovereignty. Your life is confident in your personal safety. And in recognizing that today, you recognize you've never really trusted Jesus with your salvation, with your life before. Friend, you who call yourself a Christian today, it's not too late for you to say, you know what? I haven't really been following Jesus. I need to today. I need to make that commitment that I've never really made today. Yeah, I walked down an aisle once. I was baptized once, but I never really gave my life to Christ. I'm going to make today the day. You do that this morning as we sing in response. And Christian, whatever God, however God is calling you to respond to his word today, I pray that as we sing, you would do that in your heart and in your soul. If you need to kneel at your seat to pray, if you need to come forward to the steps, spend time in prayer, you need to share something with me that you need prayer for. I want to help you in that. I want to counsel you in that. I want to rejoice in the things that God is doing. Let us, as we pray and the praise team comes, prepare our hearts to respond to God as he's calling us to be witnesses of Jesus who look like him.